I started to realize was that, oh my gosh, I have a lot of pain that keeps showing up in my life. Repetitive patterns, problems, issues kept repeating over and over and over. And I'm thinking it's that person's issue. It's this situation. It's this problem. It's this. It's always somebody else's fault. Some other situation's fault. I didn't realize this is a repetitive pattern. I'm the common denominator here. Within three years of release, two out of three ex-offenders are rearrested. Clearly, something is broken. It's time we strategize ways to prevent repeat offenses. Our brainstorming session starts now. Welcome to A Prisoner's Pardon. Hello and welcome to A Prisoner's Pardon podcast. I'm your host, Michi J. Today, we have a special guest. His name is Jamal Javanji. Jamal is a best-selling author and wrote the book, Living for a Living which talks about how we live in a survival mode rather than living in our purpose. Jamal is also a life coach who was previously a pastor, which considering what a pastor does, doesn't surprise me much that he has become a life coach. Jamal had a previous job besides being a pastor and that surprises me greatly because Jamal was a correctional officer. Over the years, while visiting my brother in prison, I've come into contact with many correctional officers, and I've always wondered why they became a correctional officer. As our main focus here is prison reform, I think we really need to hear from a correctional officer. Jamal, in my estimation, is a perfect candidate because he was also a pastor and now is a life coach. And he doesn't currently work in the system, so he'll be able to talk to us more freely about what that job consists of. Now listen to my chat with Jamal. Jamal, how are you today? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I've been been looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I have too, because you got a great background and I can't wait for my audience to hear. So tell us more about your book, Living for a Living. Like why that title? Yeah, I appreciate the question. It actually comes from a little bit of a pet peeve for me because, you know, growing up, um, you know, people would always ask you, hey, what do you want to, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do for a living? And then of course you grow up and people ask the question, what do you do for a living? And the reason why it was kind of a pet peeve for me is because, you know, I grew up in a family, you know, my dad grew up overseas, comes from a very impoverished part of the world. And my mother also uh, generationally, you know, comes from an area of the country where there's just a lot of generational struggle and poverty. And what I witnessed and I appreciated their life and the sacrifices they made, but what I watched was they worked really hard, but they did they lived in such a way, it was really all about survival. It was always about paying the bills, just bringing in enough money to survive. And my mother, to give you an example, she had a good job, worked for the state, good, paid well, good benefits, but she hated her job <laughs> so much that there were some mornings she would wake up and actually throw up. Um, that's how much she just dreaded the sense of dread to go to work. She just did not like it, but she did it for 30 years and uh, retired. And I remember watching that growing up and realizing, is that what life is? 
is even though I appreciated and really knew that she was sacrificing a lot for, for our family, I just thought to myself, is that what I have to look forward to? Is that what life's about? Just surviving, paying the bills. And when people, to me, because that didn't seem like living to me, that seemed like survival, big difference between living and survival. So when people ask the question, what do you do for a living? I used to think, wait, I know what they're asking. They're mm-hmm. asking, if, you know, I would like to rephrase it. It should be, what do you do for money? <laughs> because a lot of times what we do for money is not in alignment with actually who we are and what makes us come alive. So living and survival are very different things. So uh, my parents did things for, for money, but it, they weren't actually living. And so in the fullest sense of the word, and I, you know, of course also repeated that and started to go down those footsteps before I started to get conscious of some things. And I, I realized there is a difference between living and surviving. And so I became very passionate about what does it mean to live for a living and what is the work that we're here to do in the world that's not really just based upon a paycheck or survival, but is really getting to the deeper core of the, and to answer the question of why, mm-hmm. why am I here? What's the point of all this? What's the point of life itself? And so the book living for a living, really my journey of how I transitioned out of what I call an economy of survival <laughs> or an economy of lack rooted in this the, the sense of lack and really moving into an economy of abundance or love. And so that I can align myself with the work that I'm here to do, which is not about surviving. It's about living. So um, okay. that's what yeah. living for living is about. Yeah. Wow. I like that. This, that sounds really, really interesting. And so I think basic, the one of the basic questions that we all have, and it's basically what's our purpose. So you said you went through a journey of transition. So mm-hmm. could you take us a little bit through this journey of yours? Absolutely. Well, I, <laughs> you know, I started, it's a lot of years, but I'll try to condense it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, as early, as far back as I can remember, as I mentioned, I, I was just, I was fascinated by life. I was always asking questions. I wanted to know why we do what we do. Why do adults do what they do? I watched my parents um, and I wanted to know why do they do what they do? And I didn't realize until much later that, that was a fundamentally, that's a, that's what I would call a spirit. It's a spiritual question. And I'm asking, what is the point of life? Why are we here? So my dad, his religion of his family was Islam. So he was a Muslim. And so I grew up in a very, he was very devout and uh, centered, you know, I remember watching my dad pray five times a day and our household was kind of centered around that. And then my mother was very devout Catholic. So very unlikely couple. She she actually (laughs) wanted to be a nun before she married my dad. Wow. What kind of kid did they have? Okay. I want (laughs) to So I grew up, you know, I grew, I went to the mosque on the weekends and would go to Catholic schools during the week. And so I, I'm just trying to make sense of all of this. Like what is, what's happening and what's real. And you know, what's my, my dad was very devout. My mom was very devout, but I knew that there was major differences in their belief systems, but what I was looking for. And I did, again, I didn't know this at the time I, I was looking for, does it work for them? Meaning less about the specific beliefs, but is it, is it addressing the deeper issues of their life. Like, are they happy? Do they feel fulfilled? Mm -hmm. You know, that's what I mean by it doesn't work for them. And what I witnessed was it doesn't, it it didn't really answer the, the fundamental questions of, uh, again, the why, why are we here? What are we doing here? So that led me on a journey. I was 
deeply unsatisfied with what I was finding in life. So by the time I got into high school, I mean, I was drinking and, you mm-hmm. know, getting into drugs and sex and just, I was kind of in that scene. I went headfirst into it. Now I wasn't doing it because it was the cool thing to do or is what people were doing. I was actually looking, I was actively searching, like maybe it's about this. Maybe life's about trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction through these means, you know, and um, it didn't take me long to realize that didn't work. Hmm. So eventually out of high school, I became a father when I was 18. I have a daughter that was born literally on my 18th birthday. I was a senior in high school. So I became a new dad, very young in life, and I needed a job to take care of my child and eventually got married pretty quick, you know, within a year after that. And I ended up becoming a corrections officer. That was kind of a, I mean, I really was unqualified for that position at the time, but my dad knew somebody who Mm -hmm. worked in, you know, state office somewhere who they said, Hey, you know, we really have a shortage of corrections officers in the state of Ohio at the time. And Mm -hmm. that's where I I was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. And so they said, tell your son, I had a brother who's a year and a half older than me. And he, they, they, they said, tell your, tell your brother, tell your sons to apply. <laughs> so my, my, my brother applied mm-hmm. and he got the job and uh, I thought he's crazy. I would never do that. And then after <laughs> I got out of school, I ended up doing that. So I ended up becoming a corrections officer and uh, that was a life-changing experience for me. I ended up doing that for about five years. And what I discovered in that time, I really learned, it was such a, I look at that as a, almost like, you know, that it was divine providence that I got Mm -hmm. that job because it really prepared me for my, for my trajectory in life. I didn't know it at the time, you know, I obviously I needed a paycheck, so I was not living for a living in that moment. (laughs) I just didn't job. But in that position as a corrections officer, Mm -hmm. I always tell people I became convinced. I came in, I came into that job thinking that people were, some people were just bad. They were just inherently evil or they needed to be locked away and discarded. And that mm-hmm. was just my view of, of people. And after about five years working there, I, I always tell people, I came away from that time of working in a, in a correction as a corrections officer convinced in the goodness of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, what I saw was that people at their core are no different than, than me. We all have the same desires, same longings, but our story is what gets in the way of our humanity. It gets in the way of our, our power, our essence, the, the fullness of who we are as a living being. What gets in the way is our story, mm-hmm. our personal stories that a lot of times are rooted in trauma, that are rooted in deep pain. And what I saw in the prison was that a lot of the folks that were there as, as inmates were people who had stories with a lot of pain. And many times those folks had never learned to see themselves beyond their story, not realizing that who they were was like who they, who they thought they were was literally a story. It wasn't the truth of who they were. And I began to see that if somebody could get a glimpse of themselves beyond their story, beyond their pain, there's their freedom. And I became so passionate about that, of of helping people heal Mm -hmm. and go beyond their story. So that was very instrumental period of my life. So yeah. any one person there that kind of struck you or any person that stands out to you there that kind of helped shape that in particular, you don't have to give a name per se, but 
just what mm-hmm. did they say to you that just gave you that aha like moment or something? That's a good question. I remember it was a really challenging job for me in the beginning because I was 19 when I got the job as a corrections officer. A lot of these guys were older than me. That's nice. So <laughs> I was real, I was just a, just a baby myself. And I had to grow up pretty quickly to, to survive that. And I remember being, being, you know, eventually you get seniority, you know, when you work there, everything goes by seniority. So when you get a little bit of seniority, you can, at the, at the prison I worked in, it was a minimum medium security. So in population, I mean, there was, it's kind of dormitory style uh, prison. Oh, so okay. you, you may have a dormitory of about 500 people uh, in, in it. And then there's four corrections officer f- per dormitory. So you have, you have about 500 to four ratio. So, uh, you know, it can be, it can be a little stressful, but yeah. when I got seniority, I put a bid in on a position in the prison is what they call the hole, mm. which is security control. It's, it was the maximum security unit of the prison. And it's where folks are locked down 23 out of 24 hours a day. And it's usually because they did something in the prison. They broke, you know, the rule, the laws of the prison, whatever. And they got sent to jail within jail. It's like basically jail within jail is another way to put it. Mm-hmm. So that became my permanent post. I actually really liked it because well, number one, it, it was very much more manageable because mm-hmm. people were locked down 23 out of 24 hours a day, mm-hmm. but they, you know, they had its drawbacks. I mean, people were angry and you're locked up and you're in jail within jail, basically, meaning there's really, there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of yelling, screaming, throwing things out in the range. And I remember one particular day. So when we would come in for our shift, there would be a log book in which the the previous shift would document what's happening on the range. If somebody was a problem, this particular person was a problem, they'd actually put a yellow mark next to their name Mm -hmm. in this log book. And um, that was pretty customary. And I remember coming on shift and was walking down a range a couple of times and guys would be just full of anger and rage. And, you know, I had a uniform on, so I became the target of a lot of their, their anger. And, you know, I represented a system to them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I remember one particular day, uh, just having this realization that I could not control, like I, I, we were there to maintain security, but I realized I cannot control grown human beings. Mm-hmm. Like that's not something in, it doesn't matter how much they pay me. I don't have the authority to control people, but mm-hmm. I can respond to them. And that was a really key point. And I remember getting to a point where I really understood that. And I just, some guy was giving me a lot of, <laughs> uh, black, just black and mm-hmm. resistance. And he, you know, it was time to go to sleep. And I was telling him, okay, it's past certain hour. You need to go to sleep. And he looked at me, he said, I'm a grown man. He's like, I'm, he's like, I'm in prison. I'm in jail within jail, basically. <laughs> and who do you think you are telling me that I got to go to sleep as if I'm some child. And I could tell he's reacting. He's reacting like a child would react when a parent says, Hey, it's time to go to bed. Literally, even though he's a grown man. And I said, you know, what? I hear what you're saying. I was like, I totally understand what you're saying. And you got a point there. I can't tell you when to go to bed. I can just tell you, this is, this is the rules, right? This is like this. I didn't choose to be here. You didn't choose to be here, but you're here. I'm here. And these are the rules, right? You have to go to sleep at a certain hour. If you don't, there's going to be, there's going to be a cause and effect to that. Now I don't want that, but I'm going to get paid regardless. I'm going to be here eight hours. You're going to be here eight hours. How you do it is your choice. I'm just telling you, we have certain, these are certain, um, there's a certain criteria as to how we're going to do our time. So you, we can do it hard or we can do it easy, but literally you're right. I can't tell you that. I can just inform you of what the, what the case is. You make the choice. And then what happens to you is going to be your choice, but it's always your choice. And I, and then I kind of got into, I said, but if you just look at your life, 
it's not different with your life. We don't have control over a lot of things. We don't put ourselves in certain situations, but we, how we respond to it is entirely our choice. And I just remember we got into this conversation. We started talking. (laughs) He was one of the worst guys, uh, consistently worse, like would be violent, all this. And we had a conversation where I just, and I recognize this is just one man talking to another man. This is an inmate officer. This is just human to human. And I respected him as a person with freedom, with choice, with sovereignty, just like I have. We're just in different situations. And I remember coming into work the next day and the officer that I was relieving, he said, no yellow marks today. I said, what? He said, yes, for some reason, there's no yellow marks. So not only did this man listen to what I was saying, the whole range was listening. I didn't know that. And just that realization, and as simple as I'm telling you this, like, oh, it's a simple concept. A lot of people are like, yeah, of course we have choice. Believe it or not, sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And I, it occurred to me that this conversation affected an entire range of folks in there that maybe they hadn't even considered the freedom. We're so focused on the bars and what we don't have control over and the loss of freedom and all this, but to realize like even behind these bars, you have a choice of how you will respond to life, how, what's going on inside of you. And literally there was no yellow marks. And this guy from that time on, as long as he was in that range, he was one of the most respectful people after that Hmm. to me. And to, to others, just he learned to take control pretty quickly of his life. Just that one concept, that was a life-changing experience for me. Yeah, and I, it sounds like it was for him as well. Um, that was, you know, my takeaway from that is that you spoke to him, not at him. Mm-hmm. And you didn't take it personal, you know, because right. control is about personal stuff versus asking them to respond and talking to them, knowing you just brought reality, made Absolutely. it re- made it real and and told him what his rights are. And, and that was a I think that was very, very good. And I hope <laughs> more correctional officers are listening to this because um did did you get this in training did someone train you to do that no i, I honestly and and you know i don't i can't, it's hard for me to remember the specifics but what i remember taking away from our training was actually the opposite i remember coming away from the cuz we you know we'd go through an academy and uh to, how long the, a week well the 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 academy were i believe for me i think it was like a month maybe okay. maybe 3 weeks or something but then of course we had a 9 month probationary period in which it was still kind of a continuation. I mean, you were there, but you were on probation. They could really get rid of you for any moment. Now, if you made it past the probationary period, and that was challenging. I mean, a lot of folks didn't make it. Then you were considered, you had some tenure and it was really hard to lose your job at that point. But I remember even in my my academy and probationary period, it was really drilled into us. You cannot see, uh, they said every inmate has a six digit number. You must understand they are just a six digit number to you. You cannot see them as peers or equals. And, and, and uh, that was a key because they, the psychology of that is when you're maintaining the security of an institution, a lot of that is dependent upon this perception of hierarchy and control, you know, officer, inmate, not the same kind of this. That was the 
you know, that was the, what, what a lot of this was built upon. And um, they would, they, they would stress, they call it interpersonal communication, IPC skills, as they say, interpersonal communication. So the idea of having interpersonal communication was valued and championed, but I think what, where, where it got undercut was in the, how do we view people? How are we viewing them? Do we, do we actually view them as people hmm. or do we view them as wards of the state? Six criminals, right? Six digit. So there's a big difference between, you know, somebody could have committed a crime or you could be a criminal. Now, which one are you? you We all have a past. You know, I went through a divorce in my past, right? I don't see myself as a divorced man. No, I have been through divorce. That's a big difference, right? I'm not identified by the actions or the, like, situations don't define who we are. Mm -hmm. Actions, past actions do not define who we are. We are so much more than that. So that that was not well understood, you know, that human beings, if you define them by their past, you, you inherently limit them. You put shackles on them. If you define them by their actions immediately, you know, you're going to have people that you consider to be of no value, worth, or dignity. So that was not understood. Uh, so I had to learn that. Uh, and that was something that, that I did on my own, you know, to really, to perceive if you can look at another human being long enough and you can find out enough of their information, their story, you realize everyone has a story. Everyone has pain. And, and then when you, when you look beyond that, you'll realize we are actually all the same at the core mm-hmm. for all life. And mm-hmm. uh, that I did not receive that training. No, it's uh, interesting. Maybe you got it from your training at home, possibly with the background that you come from. So yeah, and I think this is the desire to understand people, mm-hmm. you know, what makes a person do what they do. I wanted to know why does a person behave this way? Why does a person have this type of reaction? I just wanted to know what's your story. And I realized everyone's got a story. Okay. So that's interesting how their correctional officers are trained. I'm all, I was always interested in that mm-hmm. to see because they didn't look like they wanted to be there <laughs> either, you know, because when I was visiting there and stuff, I, I saw them run out of there when, oh, yeah. when it was time to leave and shift changes and um, they were just running out of, out of there that like they couldn't wait. So I always wondered why did they take this job? and not understanding this perception here like they're just like everybody else they just they need money and they just took the job mm-hmm. so what what was your next place so after that so you left there you left the mm-hmm. correctional facilities and you went yeah totally after that i ended up going to college um my sense was that I wanted to help people. So that after my uh, almost five years working as a corrections officer, I realized I want to help people. And at the time, you know, I, I became, you know, really involved in a church. People were telling me that you really, you have a, I think your desire, your heart's like ministry. You need to become a pastor. So I ended up going to a a college, a university, got a degree and um, became a pastor. So after, so I did that the next four years was, university. And then after those four years, it was another four years of starting a church, working as a, as a local church pastor. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, and that was an interesting uh, perspective <laughs> <I bet>. because, 
Yeah. Because, you know, my heart was to, I wanted to help people, but then one of the things that got in the way, even as a corrections officer of, of, of working and helping people was the job, right? I had to maintain security. There was certain aspects of the job that was about maintaining, uh, that the, you know, helping the prison function as a prison, <laughs> which mm-hmm. was not my heart, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what led me out of it. But interestingly enough, what got in the way of me helping people as a pastor was a lot of it was the machinery of maintaining the church structure, right? It was keeping that. It was basically, I was basically a CEO of a company <laughs> and the day in day out mechanics of keeping that machine running got in the way of really what I was passionate about, which was people. Mm-hmm. And so I did that for about four years and then that became deeply unsatisfying <laughs> just okay. as the corrections officer uh, right. position became for me. So that's a whole other story that I can get into, but um, the, the sub story behind all of this though, that we haven't talked about is my own issues. So I had uh, the way I look at it is mm-hmm. we typically try to help people. We try to give to people what we haven't or what we have needed for ourselves. Now I didn't know this. We try to love others in the way we wanted to or needed to be loved. Okay. Let me clap. facts okay go ahead so i wanted to rescue people help people because i needed that Mm -hmm. if i if i'm being honest that's what i needed and there was a lot of unhealed trauma in my own life Mm -hmm. and i didn't know that it took me it took me many years to realize that the world i was trying to change the world out here change people fix people do all these things do something significant, make a name for myself, all those all of those things out here I was trying to do. And I didn't realize like the world, the external world that I experience is just a mirror. It's literally a mirror of my internal world. Mm-hmm. And I, you can't change. Like, it's like looking in the mirror, right? If you notice a cut, if you look in the mirror and you see a cut on your face, you could put a bandaid on the mirror, but it's not going to work, right? It's not going to help you <laughs> because mm-hmm. the reflection, you can't change the reflection. You have to go to the source. If mm-hmm. you, if you, so what I started to realize was that, oh my gosh, I have a lot of pain that keeps showing up in my life. Repetitive patterns, problems, issues kept repeating over and over and over. And I'm thinking, it's that person's issue. It's this situation. It's this problem. It's this, it's always somebody else's fault. Some other situations fault. I didn't realize this is just a, this is a repetitive pattern. I'm the common denominator here. Mm-hmm. And that caused me to eventually, uh, my life came apart. Wheels came off the bus, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I, went, I lost my marriage. I lost all my relationships, lost all my income, got to the point where I was homeless, mm-hmm. just completely done with life, suicidal, ready to be done. And that, that took a long time to get to that point. But when I was in that state of just complete, I didn't want to live. That's when, um, I got, I got desperate and certain things happened to me that caused me to start turning inward to look inside. And I realized, Oh, there's pain in here. I've been on the run for years trying to mitigate it, fix it out here but it's in here. And that's when I started inner work and really began to get to the deal with why I was feeling the way I was feeling. Why was I so angry? Why was I so upset? Why was I so hurt? What's what's going on here? And that had to deal with some things from the past that I had not dealt with. Didn't even know were still affecting me. And, um, that was, that was work <laughs> that took, that was the hardest work I've ever done. And that became my career, so to speak, inner healing just for me, wow. nobody else. 
That's good. I believe that's what we all, if we're honest, what we all have to do is go yep. through that journey. So that was good. You're talking about those, I would say, demons there and you overcame it. And what were you doing next? Well, eventually, I mean, this was just a lot of it was just about survival, right? Getting, learning how to get up out of bed in the morning and put two feet on the floor and just figure out what I didn't know what was next. I had no idea because I had, you know, literally I'd lost everything at that point. And I remember getting to a point where life started to feel good again. I started to have some, felt like I could put one foot in front of another and started to function. And I had just, you know, I was really blessed with people who supported me during that time, friends that just allowed me, you know, even to you know, very practical things of people letting me stay with them mm-hmm. during this really intense period. So I could focus on getting my better. inner healing. And I think they knew that I didn't really know that I just was, it was just reality for me. But mm-hmm. eventually I got to this point where life was starting to work again. And I was talking to this lady, she had some addiction issues that she had been struggling with. And I understood that. And I was talking to her about the things I was overcoming and learning. And and she said, Hey, have you ever thought about this? I said, thought about what? She said, doing this, like doing what? She was like, <laughs> like doing what you're doing with me, like helping me. I said, mm-hmm. and that was like a foreign language because mm-hmm. that was what I had tried to do for all those years mm-hmm. as a corrections officer, as a pastor. And it was unsuccessful in my book, in my opinion, it just didn't seem like it was sustainable. And then that was the first time that that thought, but it was coming through a very different grid now. Instead of trying to change the world and change people. Now, what she said was, Hey, have you thought about just sharing your life? What works for you? What has, what your journey has been? And then it like something, when she said that, it just was like a a birth of something, a vision. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I don't know, like, like maybe you could become a coach or something. I was like, (laughs) a coach? What is that? (laughs) And I just, I never even, knew that, that that existed. And I started to look into that and I was being coached and I just never considered myself as one or could be one. And that, that eventually led me in a direction. So I ended up writing a book, end up, you know, getting into coaching and uh, sharing, you know, what passing on what worked for me, you know, cause mm-hmm. my biggest thing was I never want to, I don't want to speak from theory anymore. I don't want to try to pass on to somebody what doesn't work for me. Um, really all I know, I'm an expert in my life. <laughs> what I've, We all are. We're expert in our lives, what we've experienced and mm-hmm. what we've learned as, as a result of those experiences. And I realized, oh, I can do that. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, so, uh, that's that's interesting. what happened. <laughs> yeah. So you, um, um, and then everything that you had happened in the past still Though it was a lot of takeaways from that. So, cause you were still doing, you were helping people, but just in a different capacity. Mm-hmm. So it sounded like you almost sound like me a little bit. <laughs> you don't want too much of the mechanics of it. You just want to work with the individual sure. piece and leave the mechanics to the ones that's in administration that way, I guess. So, sure. oh, okay. So living for a living. So now at this point in your life, mm-hmm. it seems like you found your purpose mm-hmm. and have you been doing it over five years? Cause that's yes. usually. Like... Well, it took, I, what I say is my first purpose. And again, this may sound very cliche and I, I, 
I would have never, I would have scoffed at this years ago, but I realized my people, cause people get caught up. They go, I don't know what my purpose is and what is my purpose. And that you have to find your purpose. And I always say this, it's not really that complicated as we may think mm-hmm. your first purpose is to live. <laughs> always, mm-hmm. Like that's why you have life, right. Is to live. And so like, what does it mean to live? Mm-hmm. Well, we think we need something when, when people talk about their life, right. They talk, they think of, maybe they think of when someone says my life is good and they say, well, what they mean is I have a good house. I have a big house. Maybe I have some cars. I have some money in the bank. I have a good relationship. Maybe I'm married or I'm in a significant relationship with somebody. People, people mean a lot of things when they talk about their life, but I had to realize that's not my life. None of those things are my life. Your house is your house. It's not your life. Your cars are your cars. They're not your life. Your money is money. It's not your life. Really, your life is this moment. What is it? What is life like in this moment? See, that's what I've realized is life. Life is how am I experiencing consciousness, live aliveness in this moment? Does it feel daunting? Does it feel light? Does it feel abundant in this moment? Do I have a sense of joy and well-being? That's my life. And my purpose is to live well. So I say, if you're alive today, your 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 first job is to live, to show up, to live well. That means if I have a cup of coffee, I'm going to drink that cup of coffee and enjoy it for all mm-hmm. it's worth. Mm-hmm. If it's a meal, if I'm cooking, I'm going to cook with presents. I'm going to eat with presents. If I'm with my spouse, with somebody, I'm going to be with them. I'm going to be present with them. If I want to watch a movie, I'm going to enjoy the movie. It's like that's, I know this thing sounds like people discount that, but at the end of the day, when we, you know, and we've all had experiences where we may have heard of somebody become, you know, gets a terminal illness, you know, and when those times come and we know my wife's grandfather just passed about a week ago, a couple weeks ago, and he was on hospice for a year and he had cancer and it was amazing. We, and it was, a, it was actually a really gift to walk with him in this last year, to really be with him in this time as his life is winding down because he got, he, he was so many of these epiphanies he was a very driven, very you know successful individual, but in this last year, he just one of my most favorite memories from just seeing him go through this was he, we were sitting in the he, his time was the morning he'd love mornings he'd love coffee so I was sitting with him one morning he had a hospital bed in his living room he was laying in this hospital bed he couldn't walk had a brain tumor and it was spreading so he couldn't even really talk the way he normally did reduced to just a shell of his former life, but he's sitting there with this coffee cup and he's like swirling the coffee in the cup and he's looking in the cup. He looks up at me and he goes, it's about this. Mm. And it just struck me just, it was like a, Oh my goodness. He's like, he, it, I could hear what he's saying. He was like, it took me all these years to get to this point. And now I'm realizing it's always been about this moment in life in this moment, I realized, okay, that's it. Um, that's what it's about. That's our purpose is to live well. Cause when we show up for life, you, something natural will happen. You'll start to see um, what's needed in the world. Because we have a lot, we have a world, where there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of issues in this world. There's a lot of needs. So the question <laughs> is if there's, we have a role to play in that. Mm-hmm. And there's things that we need to do to, to help make this world a better place but we won't see what those needs are if we're in our own dramas, you know, if we're kind of in our own struggles, if we we can't really show up and do what is needed because we're not settled in here. But if we can learn to be settled in here, show up for our life and live well, what we will end up doing for a living, 
is what's needed. Yeah. And when everybody does that, the world transforms. Well, that was part one with Jamal. Hearing about his experience as a correctional officer gave us more insight into that profession and how possible changes and how they are trained can help with prison reform. His interaction with a person who was in the hole really shows us how much we really need to train correctional officers when they're dealing with inmates. Our interview with Jamal is not finished. In part two, you will learn Jamal's perspective in dealing with people who are incarcerated. And it is just as informative as part one. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Until next time, I'm Michi J. Wishing you a week filled with blessings. Thanks for tuning in to the show. For more information on our guests and resources, visit prisonersparting.com. If you're enjoying the content, follow, like, and subscribe to this podcast. Also, please be sure to leave a rating and review. Until next time, God bless.